0: for all of us who are struggling, regardless of our place in this society with what is happening, to remember that 95% of children are capable of learning to read, but it requires the appropriate, sufficient, direct instruction to get it done. So let's work together
1: and get it done.
2: I would just say, I think I've heard every parent, including myself, every kid is different. My kid is unique and that we need to fully embrace that when we think about how our child is wired, how their brain is wired, and how they learn. And that there's nothing wrong with your kid, not to be ashamed if you think that they are wired differently, to embrace that just as much as you would whenever you brag about how cool your kid is because they do this or they do something else different. That the way they learn and the different ways that they learn is something that we should lift up and really celebrate because that is their blessing, that is their gift to the world. And if we all were the same we'd be in a very boring world.
3: Hello and welcome to the Black and Dyslexic Podcast with Winifred A Winston and Laderrick Horn the show that unapologetically focuses on helping Black and underrepresented minorities navigate the special education process. We want to help raise awareness in the Black and Brown community, remove the stigma about learning disabilities, and provide you access to professionals in the space of dyslexia and special education that you need to hear from. I'm super excited. The Black and Dyslexic podcast, we went all out today. Okay, I've got Dr. Simone Gibson from Morgan State University. She's going to speak with us today. I've got Heather Bowles. She is a structured literacy guru. I'm just going to call her that. She is the owner of Purposeful Literacy. And we've also got Dr. Angelique Jessup. She is a parent advocate, and we're all going to discuss literacy, education, schools, and parents. So welcome, ladies. I'm so happy to have you all. Yay! Thank you for having
0: us. Thank
3: you. Dr. Gibson, I'm just going to pick on you, and I want you to tell us, just start with Morgan State University being the only, the first, and an HBCU that is getting IDA accreditation. Like, that is huge. So let's just start there. I'm sorry, guys, I'm using acronyms. IDA is the International Dyslexia Association. That's a really big deal. So Dr. Gibson, tell us about that.
1: First of all, thank you so much for having me. The work that we are doing right now within our program really comes from a place of honesty that we had to have a couple years ago where we were understanding that a lot of our candidates, our teacher candidates, were graduating from the program going into their first year of teaching and giving us feedback that they felt really overwhelmed and underprepared. So I wish I could say that I just had this brilliant idea to just start making these changes. It it didn't. It really came from a place of we had to make some really dramatic changes in our department so that we were better equipping our students. Morgan is at HBCU, and we know the baggage that often comes with HBCUs and the assumptions and stereotypes already about our candidates being underprepared, especially when they're working with kids outside of the Black community. But what we were learning is that whether they were working with black kids in Baltimore City or working with uh, the most privileged children in Montgomery County, our teachers were overwhelmingly telling us, you did not do a great job preparing me to address the reading needs of my students, regardless of what their background was. So um, our need to make some changes is really what propelled some of this energy. I had been really fortunate to be doing some work with the Odyssey School. I was doing some work with training teachers, and it was based on that relationship with the school um, that they connected me with a program called the Dyslexia Tutoring Program. So while we were making changes within our department in terms of the ways that we were training our teachers and enhancing and addressing their reading pedagogy, we can currently establish this relationship with Dyslexia Tutoring Program, which involves access and training to Orton-Gillingham. So on one hand, you have the theoretical piece where we're saying we've got to do a better job of helping our students understand what are the foundations of reading, what are the pieces of reading, and how do we as teachers break down those pieces of reading so that we are teaching reading in a way that it appeals to all kids. And we did that in collaboration with these practicum experiences we had through dyslexia tutoring program where our students were trained in OG, and they were assigned a student who has been designated as having dyslexia. So these experiences together have kind of started to shape our reading work within the department, and we're starting to see some really awesome outcomes from that. This work has been in progress now for three years, so we're still young and new, but what we're recognizing is, one, we were making some huge mistakes in operating the way we've been operating for the past hundred years teaching teachers the same thing, the same way. We know lots of folks learn how to read this kind of structured literacy approach, this whole literacy approach. Give kids beautiful books with lovely colors and great vocabulary, and they'll just pick it up. And we know there are lots of kids who learn that way, but we know the vast majority of people do not learn that way. And so we're teaching, we were teaching our candidates to teach kind of that old way, just If you give them great literature and you read to them enough and you make it interesting and connect it to their lives, they'll pick it up. And we know that is totally inappropriate. It's just wrong. And as a result of that thinking, and it's not just Morgan, but I can only speak for what we were doing. We failed a lot of kids because we weren't armed with how do I appropriately teach someone how to read? Just how do I make the rules of reading really explicit so you don't have to do all this guesswork? right? Because everybody's brain isn't like created in a way to just to figure it out. Yes, Um, yes. So we are really working to make sure that our candidates graduate really clear on how do I fundamentally teach someone the rules of the English language? And how do I translate those rules into helping people learn how to read and write? So that's where that structured literacy work and the work with OG comes in. So that's kind of a long and short history of how We've kind of come to this place right now in our pursuit of working to get accredited.
3: Well, I know I've told you this and I've shared this. That's how I learned about you indirectly, right? Because I was familiar with this dyslexia tutoring program and my family wasn't eligible because they're income-based. And I learned that somebody at Morgan was sending their students there for externship. I'm like, wait a minute, Morgan is doing that? Who is that? And I was trying to find you, right? Because I'm like, oh, wow. And then I was on the committee for that reading panel and I reached out to you to invite you to the reading summit, rather, that we hosted the beginning of the year. And then you responded and said, wait a minute, I'm very interested in this. I know about OG. I'm doing X, Y, Z. And oh my gosh, I was like, I found her. I found her. (laughs) And then when I needed an academic lead at Morgan, I was like, I'm going to go back to the OG person because I don't have to explain why this is so important. She'll get it. So I'm going to move on to you, Heather, because purposeful literacy, tell us about purposeful literacy
0: and what you're doing. Thank you for having me again today. I just, I'm really glad to be with you. We do training and advocacy around the science of reading and the science of learning, which is really what structured literacy is all about. So we support families sometimes with testing, also with understanding what's happening with their child, interpreting their child's data, because we know that regardless of the school system or the school Unfortunately, parents don't always get detailed information about what's happening with their child with reading, and it was really born of an idea from an organization called EAB. They were formerly known as the Education Advisory Board. Now they just go by EAB, but they did a white paper around the science of reading, and one of the quotes that I pulled from them that really guides everything I do is the idea that 95 percent of elementary students regardless of background are cognitively capable of learning to read when they receive sufficient direct instruction on the foundation of reading those foundational skills and that is also what brought me to dr gibson because of her work with structured literacy and og and my love and passion around that we had the opportunity to connect and to know to your point that it's happening at the college level, which is what we need because so many teachers are unaware of how our kids actually learn how to read. And I do train teachers professionally, but in addition to training teachers, I just felt like it was necessary for the community to also learn that there is a science behind it. And to Dr. Gibson's point, you do have scientifically, it's been shown through functional MRIs that about 30% of kids or so will just naturally pick it up. And those are the whole word readers and that type of thing. But for the remaining 70%, they need structured literacy. And it's high time, beyond time, that we give everybody and anybody who can listen and will listen the information on how to get that done. So not only in schools, but also in the community as well.
3: Yeah, I get a lot of parents who say, "Well, Winifred, I want to learn like how and what. Like I want to learn because they're like concerned about being able to afford a tutor and, you know, the five components of reading. I couldn't tell you what they are right like off the top of my head, but as a parent with a child with dyslexia, now I know there are five components of reading and structured literacy addresses those and a kiddo can have a deficit in one, two or all five, right? And I'm just a parent like, okay, I was an educator, but that was like two years. I was a CTE teacher. I had no formal education training. Like I didn't go to school to be a teacher, but because my daughter struggles with learning how to read, I had to learn that so I could ask the right questions, right? And so that's going to take us to Dr. Angelique Jessup because she's a parent advocate. So she feels my vibe around as a parent, what you don't know, how to ask questions. And Heather, when you said teaching parents about interpreting that data everything all decisions are made around data right and so that's huge that is so huge so angelique please share with us how are you helping parents what are you doing and how did you enter this space
2: thank you winifred so much for having me i feel really blessed to be here with these brilliant women with all three of you so i'm coming into this space personally and professionally personally being a mom of three kids, each that is unique in their own way, and kind of going through the journey with them. So just real quick, I work professionally around literacy in Baltimore City Public Schools. I live in Baltimore County, and very early on in my daughter's educational experience in a school in the county that's regarded as one of the most highly rated schools, I noticed something off the bat. I noticed that the communication around academic learning between the teachers and the families was amazing. That from the time my daughter was five years old, I knew specifically what she was learning in terms of phonics and learning how to read. There was no mystery there. Um, And That was an interesting space for me because it was juxtaposed to me working and doing work around literacy in city schools and going into classrooms and asking and engaging with families and parents and extended family and learning that there's quite a bit of communication and conversation happening between teachers and families, but it was mostly geared towards their child's behavior. And when I would say, you know, I'm getting information, they're telling me about this, and they're telling me about that, and other folks in a district that looks different, a school that demographically looks different, that's predominantly Black, I'm hearing, I don't get that. So it kind of sparked this curiosity, not just curiosity, but also a lot of emotions around Nobody was talking about racial equity then. Nobody was talking about anti-Blackness, but I was feeling all of that in the pit of my belly. And what I've been doing for the past several years is just really trying to be a strong advocate and, and to be a stronger voice around that Black families, particularly Black families in Baltimore City Public Schools, need to have have the right to be heard, have the right to be given every piece of information about what their child is learning, how they're learning it, why it's important. And to what Dr. Gibson was saying earlier about, you can't just teach educators to say, hey, you know, you're going to open up a book and see these beautiful pictures and fall in love with the literature. There's bias in that. Whenever Black families go to their schools and say, I'm concerned about my son or my daughter, I hear oftentimes that people say, just give them more books. And there's this assumption that black families aren't reading enough. They don't have you hear things like literacy rich environment or they need to have strong home libraries. Um, So as an advocate, I really want to put out there and, you know, understand that it might, you know, upset the apple cart, but I think the apple cart needs to frankly be upset that we need to start thinking about why dyslexia and other reading difficulties or differences are easily spoken about in white communities among white parents in predominantly white schools and why we're not seeing the same luxury afforded when we're talking about black children. Yes, there's trauma and a whole bunch of other things that happen to all families, but we shouldn't ascribe that strictly to black families when we think about why there might be differences in, in an achievement gap when it comes to literacy. So I'll stop there, Winifred, because <laughs> I see myself going into the soapbox.
3: No, but but what you're saying is key. And it's not even just, you know, a lot of times they think poor. When I was saying that I'm helping and I'm trying to target Black and underrepresented minorities, some partners would just chime in and be like, well, we don't really do a lot of low income. I said, did you hear me say low income? I did not say low income. I said Black and underrepresented minorities. And I say it all the time, I'm educated, I have a master's degree, I worked in education, and I still did not know how to navigate the system for my daughter. And as you were talking, I was thinking about what her school sent home when we were at a public charter school. I remember looking at the pictures, right, telling her to look at the pictures, and then she would figure out what the story is. So that's going to help with reading. Now, back then, I'm like, okay, this is what they're telling me to do. You know, I'm going through it, but I don't know, I don't really understand And then I look at my daughter, she is dyslexic. Her dad is dyslexic, graduated actually from Baltimore City Public Schools, but he never knew. He was never identified. He did not find out until she was identified. And we were at one of the private schools doing a tour and they were going over the signs and symptoms. And he said, I got it. And I was like, you got what? I knew though, I just needed him to say it. He was like, I'm dyslexic. And it made me think okay, I know that it's hereditary. Uh, you know, I've been doing all this research and I'm like, folks in Baltimore don't leave Baltimore, right? I'm not originally from here. I've been here. I've been in the city since 2006. And now I'm going back to when I was a high school teacher, right? I'm like, oh, wow, like it's hereditary. And a lot of the parents are, are products of a failed system, right? And they don't trust the system, right? And then I'm thinking like, wait a minute, I even taught at Sojourner Douglas. We know they have a history of teaching adults in Baltimore City. And I'm like, wait a minute. And it's not just low income, it's middle income, it's educated black folks. We have the same experience, right? I have people looking at me sideways when I was inquiring and I'm asking, okay, she has a specific learning disability in reading. What is that? I kept questioning it like, how will we teach her how to read? And when I'm asking these questions, and I I often felt sometimes when I, I went to certain providers, I was kind of getting like, uh, you know, because I'm Black, right? And I knew better than to raise my voice, right? I knew better than to be too aggressive, right? Because I don't want to get deemed that angry Black parent. But I kind of felt like people weren't taking me seriously. And I think I shared with you guys that I worked at a private school, right? I later went on. And when I tell you, those white parents, when they called and asked questions, they demanded answers. And some of them were not nice but they never got deemed angry. Oh, Winifred, she's just very passionate. She's very passionate about finding out what's going on with her child. And I'm like, okay. It was like a wake up call.
2: Yeah. I've, I observed that in my own school that the administrators are actually, frankly, kind of scared of the families. Like, I don't want to get sued. I'm there. So they're always hopping to the beat and the parents feel very, very empowered to be able to demand everything that they want from the school. Yes. Every single thing. So, you know, my question is like, why? Why do we see this systemic problem whenever it comes to the education of black children? What is the relationship? What's embedded in the bias and the assumptions between who the families are and what's happening at the staff and administrative level at schools? That's been on my mind quite a bit because I think to get to that is to start to disrupt and to rebuild some of the problems that we've been fighting to fix, you know, all four of us on this call today.
3: What are you guys doing collaboratively to address this theme? I'm excited to have all three of you on because we're attacking it from different angles and we see the same things. I mean, Dr. Gibson talked about it, the perception of educators coming from an HBCU, right? And then as a parent, we're seeing it on that lens with Heather in education and knowing all that she knows about structured literacy and the testing and evaluation, like she's seeing it from that level. So what are you guys doing together to address what we know is there? It's like the elephant in the room. Nobody wants to talk about it, but you know, it's there.
1: So there are a couple things you said that I found so interesting. First of all, within a lot of academic research, the term urban is synonymous with foreign black. And Black is synonymous with poor, right? So that's for starters. And that carries over outside of research. You see it in our interactions, right? The assumption is if you are Black, then you must be financially, you know, underprivileged. That's for starters. It's a concern, it's an issue. Part of what we really stress with our candidates is say what you mean. Just because you're black, we're not necessarily talking about poor folk. You go in Baltimore. There's old black money in Baltimore. Old black money. Same kind of old white money we talk about. Well, I mean, you know, not quite there, but we got old. So, you know, I think a lot of times people assume black is automatically synonymous with poverty. Two, OG's been around for a long time. Privileged folks, wealthy folks, dyslexia's been around forever. I'd imagine as long as people have been reading, someone has been dyslexic. It's not new. Wealthy folks don't see this as a condemnation. Malcolm Gladwell, wrote an entire book about Fortune 500 CEOs. And part of what he discovered in talking with these CEOs is quite a few of them are either dyslexic or have ADD or they got all kinds of stuff going on. But they come Mm -hmm. from backgrounds where their parents were empowered to address whatever, you know, help support them. And they've gone on to be exceptionally successful. That's not a narrative we often hear within our community. There's a privilege aligned with the exposure to Orton-Gillingham. It shouldn't be, because it's not rocket science. Structured literacy is not rocket science. Heather, I'll defer to you on all of that, but it, it's not that. But it's a privilege, right, And having access. It's time-consuming. It can be kind of costly, depending on who you're working with and who and who does not have access to it. But it is meaningful. But again, within, you know, with folks who've got money, they've had access to Structured literacy, specifically OG, for years isn't new. Structured literacy, or at least OG itself, has been around for maybe a hundred or so years. It is not new. So again, no. have, I know that's more your territory. So we got a privileged conversation, right?
3: Absolutely, absolutely. That's why I switched jobs because I said, why don't I know about this? And I was advocating. With Decoding Dyslexia, a grassroots organization, you know, they've got chapters in every state and international, and all of, mostly, the majority of of the parent advocates were white women. We were actually having meetings at Odyssey.
0: I didn't even know Odyssey existed. I didn't know there were private dyslexia schools. I think that's why it's so important that we're having conversations like these and why it's so important for as many of us as possible to advocate to communities because to the point that you all have been making, it definitely has less to do with socioeconomics and in my opinion has a lot more to do with race because we have helped several parents who are middle class and even an upper class family whose children were more than likely they had a reading disability or they read differently but it was not recognized or identified in those key years where we know that yes the brain can change but there are certain key years where it's important for certain things to happen in order to have learning cement the best way possible and it's not until their kids are in third grade or fourth grade that then someone starts to say we think there might be a problem up until that point going back to dr jessup's point it's always oh give them more books read more to them give them more of a literacy rich environment and they'll begin to do better. And then when that doesn't work and they come to me we start to do some assessment, we realize that there are other things going on. And I think that that's also where more teacher education is important and why I was so excited to connect with these two ladies, because it's, scary sometimes when we think about what we have not learned. And unfortunately, education is one of those professions where I guess similar to medicine 100 years ago, the research that was out there kind of swirls around in the academic and in the research community before it actually gets into practice. So there are things that we have known about how we learn and that's been applied to other fields. There are things that we have uh, learned in research about how reading works, but it hasn't applied in education until more recently so there are some students who may or may not be dyslexic but because unfortunately again teachers do not have the requisite background to really understand how reading works that it doesn't happen by osmosis it's not just the presence and the sight of a book that gets me to be able to read. They're literally brain changes that happen. So we are teaching teachers words like angular gyrus and understanding the different lobes in the brain and how they actually impact the ability to read and that there are actual structural brain changes and things that happen along with reading. It's important for teachers to know that because in my impression, we want to be respected as professionals There are certain ways that we have to mirror what happens for professionals in other fields like medicine and law, where you go back for constant continuing education. And as theory changes, we learn how to adapt practices. And it's high time that those things start to happen in education. We would love to do it within different LEAs or school districts, but sometimes it has to happen outside, and that's where we push in to not only work with teachers, but like I said, work with families, because everybody needs to know that there's a science to this. Even understanding and identifying dyslexia earlier can happen when people understand and respect the science. Oh,
3: absolutely, absolutely.
2: Dr. Gibson and Heather, I mean, something you both touched on was kind of like this moment whenever the, for in your sense, um, Heather, the teachers and with Dr. Gibson with the soon to be teachers, that they had this enlightened moment of like, I was not taught this. I'm curious, what was that exchange like? What were those discussions like? Because you go through all these years of training to be a teacher and you go through and then you become a teacher, you have your own classroom, and then you might go several years, you know, immersed and then to learn that, hey, this The most, in my opinion, the most fundamental thing that every human being needs to do to be able to read. You're not fully equipped with how to teach kids that like, what has that been like for your teachers and for uh, in your experience? How have they gone through that process?
0: For me, interestingly enough, it actually started from a personal journey with my two sons, one who has OCD and one who has ADHD, but they both attended a public charter school where they learned languages and they did well. And for me, having other students that I worked with as a teacher who they were struggling, they had some of the same things like ADHD, but were struggling with one language. And I'm thinking... I'm just like the families that I serve. What's the difference? So it kind of put me on a personal journey where like some of us teachers might do. I gave my students or my children rather the assessment that I gave my students and I started to really go through and look at the details of the data assessments. And when I realized that there was a sequence. And in this case, I'm talking about the Dibbles assessment to the skills and started to unpack it myself, I realized, oh my gosh, like there's really a connection to what I was starting to learn about as the science of reading. And Then I started to share that with my teachers. Oh my gosh. Do you realize that if you go and you just sequence The um, assessment in this way, you'll start to see a connection between students who aren't doing well here and they're not doing well there and it just gets worse. And so then I start looking at data all over the place. And so my work started from a small subset of teachers where I was helping one who was in tears. She was about to be put on a performance plan because her kids weren't doing well and i said well let's just try this let's kind of look at where they were not getting some clear skills and this is the alphabetic principle so going back to something that maybe parents of dyslexic students or children with dyslexia might be able to relate to the sound processing and then the letters or the graphemes. i noticed that the students were not connecting the two and so i said well let's do a little bit of work with giving them some deeper understanding of each one and then let's put it back together and within a few months even though the kids were still well below but the growth that they made within that window i mean we went from just recognizing individual sounds we're talking about maybe one two or three in a minute to getting up to 50 and 60 in a minute and again it was still low but the growth was so amazing that we just started to kind of snowball and do more and do more so it was a little bit of trial and error with what i was learning in my phd program along with what um, we were kind of doing with our teachers but word of mouth just got out and more teachers wanted to experience that type of success so it was almost painful for them to realize that there was information that was out there and that we had to almost figure it out on our own. So once we started to realize that there were things that we could actually do, it was almost kind of the way that the universe works, where you start to make connections. It was right around that time where I started to find out about the work that Dr. Gibson was doing and realizing that a program that we were using called Foundations was sort of a grandchild of Orton-Gillingham. And just certain connections were starting to be made for me that just brought the work that we were doing to light. But what I will say, just kind of wrapping up to the question that you were asking, I think teachers were almost hurt that they didn't know and they wanted to know, how can we learn more? Because most teachers, they want to do right by their students, but they need the information to help them do that.
1: Yeah, my candidates were angry. So morning small, right? Our department, my students have my numbers and it's not just me. I can't just say it's me. It's just kind of the culture. And I was getting text messages from students one and two in the morning, because at this point when they're new, they're teachers. They are full of enthusiasm and, you know, this vision that they know that they're going to go into the classroom and make a difference. And that's tough. Oh my gosh, we're working on an article right now. I'm forgetting the title, but something like all the enthusiasm, but none of the, none of the skills, something like that. But they want to do a good job and go into classrooms and make a difference because a lot of our candidates, our teacher candidates, for whatever reason, their goal is to work with kids who look like them. Boy who are struggling, having reading struggles or master or whatever, right? I guess your traditional underprivileged school, like that's where a lot of them gravitate towards. And they were frustrated because they've got this enthusiasm, but not the skill to actually meaningfully address what's going on with their kids. So those who I communicated with were angry, rightfully so. You know, you pay money, you're paying however much to go to school as an education major, compared to your friends who are engineering majors or biology majors, and they're graduating making double what you're making. So you've got the same debt, and you've been in training the same amount of time, but they're graduating making more. So not only are you paying debt, making less, but you don't have the skills that you need to be impactful. So rightfully so, many were angry. Not disrespectful, not rude, but angry enough for us in the department to be like, we got to do something different. This ain't working. This is
2: just uh, not work. I find that fascinating because from the parent perspective, families have the same response. Like, what do you mean you've been working on this? You've been doing this. or there other people who are getting this information? Or t- I see an opportunity here. If we can strike that intersection where you've got teachers who are like, hold up, <laughs> I've got all these feelings about this. You know, I got into this profession to change lives, to help lives to teach kids to be competent adults, you know, with lots of curiosity and and to go on and be whoever they want to be. And then you have families that want the same for their kids. Um, It's almost like what you were saying, Winifred, that there's this big elephant in the room and there are people who have resources (laughs) who can very well identify that elephant. But, you know, again, looping back to where we started, there is a privilege here that we're seeing a thread of a privilege of being able to identify and call out and to feel comfortable that, you know, you got 70% of human beings that need extra help with reading.
3: Yeah, I... Um, we shouldn't
2: operate around a 30%.
3: No, my daughter's second grade teacher, she said to me, she was like, oh my gosh, I don't know how to help Logan. I don't know how to teach a child with dyslexia, right? And so whenever we would have the IEP meetings, I would send her, her and another teacher, I think I would send the whole IEP team, then, you know, teachers who um, I just had a relationship with, I would send them information. You know, I would um, email them the articles. There's a nonprofit made by Dyslexia. They've partnered with, I want to say, Microsoft to do training because they want to do Dyslexia awareness training. They want to reach all teachers across the globe within five years just to do awareness training. And it's like a free training. We just aren't having conversations. And when I talk about it, you know, that's why I wanted to have this podcast because I want to normalize it in our community so that we can get help. Right, So that we can ask the right questions. Heather, you talk about that, interpreting that data. I still look at my daughter's report and there are certain things that I see for the first time. And this is a report from 2017. So how was I supposed to go into that meeting and successfully advocate for my daughter? I don't understand that damn report. I'm banking on them knowing what to do.
0: so. Can I say what's even scarier is imagine if the teacher doesn't really understand the report. Exactly. Exactly. And unfortunately, that's what we have been facing and what we've been up against. I didn't mean to cut you off, but it just brought me to that. Like, you know, you're thinking as a parent, when they are, when they're walking through it and talking through it, you're wondering, you know, what that means for you and your child. But there are times where the, the teacher has come. I'm Quite sure and probably even to some of yours unprepared for even understanding what this really means in terms of what your child needs and that's why I think especially for our community it's so important for parents and the community at large to have an understanding because It's just unfortunate that we can't always depend on the school for whatever reason or the district for whatever reason to have the information that we need. So we have to be sure that we have and understand and have people in our corner who can support us the best way possible so that we can support our kids. And also to your point, teach the kids to advocate for themselves. Both of my sons have a 504 plan. When I was young, I went to a private middle school. I had a 504 plan and I learned that there are lots of wealthy kids who have 504 plans. And when I got to um, college, I was able to use my 504 plan to help me and advocate for myself. And so that's also part of the work we do in even teaching teens about the science of learning so that they can not only advocate for themselves when it comes to reading, but in all other domains of their learning, even when it comes to activities that they might do. If you understand how your brain works, then you can push for the things that you need. And it is very possible. And the more that you understand it,
1: the better you can advocate for yourself. The thing is, and y'all touched on this, Even when you know the information, how do you go about getting support, right? So that's scary. So you're in a school. So we're doing this work. You asked a while ago, what's brought us together? Well, for starters, it was Angelique. Like, she is just the resource of all resources. Like, she knows everybody. and She just knows how to bring folks together. So she connected together. Amen. Um, But basically... We're here. We're all trying to figure out how is it that we go about supporting teachers so that teachers can do a better job of supporting kids. Okay, no problem. We got that. You got a couple of variants. Like It's super nuanced because while schools are open to getting training for their teachers, it's scary territory because we have so many kids who are so far behind. So when you start talking to teachers about dyslexia, they start thinking, well, wait a minute. This child and this child and this child and this child and this child, right? The numbers start adding up. And then, well, what do I need to help that child? That's expensive. It's timely. And we already got a whole lot we got to accomplish in a small amount of time. So how do I train the teacher? How do I train the psychologist to appropriately identify the student? How do I go about empowering parents who don't want to have a conversation about the fact that their child might be different and need different supports?
2: And then once I do that, again, it
1: goes back to the training piece. Who's got the time to get the training? It's not just a certificate. You need training, right? Who's got the time to get the training to impactfully address the needs of that child and that child and that child and that child? And how do I address the children who just have reading struggles? They may not necessarily even be dyslexic. They just need additional support, right? It's overwhelming. And then in comes the, the story of a lot of school systems We're struggling to keep teachers. They keep quitting because it's too much. So if I'm looking at you, Simone, and you're a first-year teacher and you're you're real excited, what I know is the likelihood is within the next three years, you're going to quit. You're one of about 50% of teachers who's just going to leave, right? That's about the national statistic. Lots of teachers are quitting. So I'm not really willing to give you a couple weeks out of the classroom to pay you, to train you, right? When the likelihood is you're not even going to be around long enough to enact this meaningfully. It's a super complicated conversation. I don't think there's just one easy solution to this, right? And again, we're dealing with some communities where parents are like, as you said, I don't want another label for my child. He's fine. That's right. Ain't no wrong, it's y'all's fault. And then you add in generational issues within schools that have failed people right? This is what happened to me. My experience was terrible, so I expect it to be terrible for my child. I don't trust the school. I don't trust anything. I mean, this stuff is super nuanced. The question becomes, what can we do? What's within our power? You ask what brought us together. There's a project in particular we got some funding for through MSDE. It's a collaboration through City Schools, BTU. So we're working to do some of the work that you're doing within this podcast. One talking to parents about what's going on, what is dyslexia, which again is a scary conversation because we got every parent thinking that their child has dyslexia and we know that's not always the case. It may be your child really just didn't, the parent, the teacher, whoever taught your child to read really just didn't understand the fundamentals and didn't do a good job of teaching them. Doesn't mean you have a particular learning difference. You just didn't learn it in the first place. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're trying to talk to parents to help advocate around reading. Uh, we're trying to train teachers and our teacher candidates. But again, this is an exceptionally nuanced challenge because you know, some of those factors, some of those barriers that I just mentioned, it's not just easy. Well, let's just go ahead and train the teachers, give them the exposure, and then everything will just kind of even out. I wish it was that simple, but unfortunately it's not. And then you got teacher education programs like the one you were referencing. Folks have been doing stuff a long time, a long time. And it's not just that institution, it's lots of us. This is how my mama learned to read. This is how my grandmama learned to read. So we're going to teach these kids. It's worked then. It's going to work now. Okay. So who do you find to actually make the changes? Because everybody's been doing things the same way. And how, heaven forbid you talk to a person with a PhD who has done research in this area. <laughs> and just how they have operated forever. And they know the research. And this is just what it is. They're not changing. Got a bunch of egos. Yeah. Yeah. This is complicated.
0: What this raises for me and i think that the trauma associated with covid has masked some of this although the conversations have continued is what is going to happen when the dyslexia screeners go live related to the ready to read act because that's coming and according to the testing that we use, which in many school districts is dibbles, there may be many children who will be flagged, to your point, Dr. Gibson, they may not have dyslexia, but their performance might flag them for Needing more screening, so I would just be interested to find out what is going to happen to us as a community, different school districts, families, students, teachers, leaders as those screeners go live.
3: But you know what? You just touched on something. You said the Ready to Read Act, you know how that got implemented? Parents, the parent group, Decode and Dyslexia. I was a part of that in 2018. We, and when I say we, like I've been reading. And this is that's not my wheelhouse. I was just trying to help my daughter learn to read. I was just trying to get OG. And then I'm seeing how these parents are advocating to make change.
1: So well, as important as parents are and like they're advocating, I think there's a step that even comes before like that advocating piece, like for the assessment. And it, we got some healing to do, right? That social, like, if there is nothing that we have learned from COVID, the social emotional piece is really important. And when I talk about healing, there's so many assumptions, right? Well, what does dyslexia mean? I'm stupid, right? Like, what does that mean about my intelligence? What does that mean about me as a parent? I gave birth to this child. You know, have I failed my child somehow? Like, I just think there's lots of healing, lots of misunderstandings, specifically within the Black community, about what some of these labels mean. So I think before we even move forward with the testing piece, which is essential and really, really important, I think we need to do a much better job of just educating people, parents, families, and just kind of healing. Because said there are a lot of labels that are thrown at us. And some of these labels, they feel like indictments, right?
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree more. I think that the education has to be paired with the healing. You can't just give people information without the healing, especially with us knowing the generational effects that what we're talking about now didn't just, this is not new.
3: I talked to Black parents who would come to the groups, or who would want to come to the group meetings, right, but they wouldn't show up. And they would tell me, well, Winifred, I feel dumb. I feel like I don't, I don't want to ask this. Now, me, I didn't have a problem saying I didn't know that's just my personality. Right. Cause I, i be damned if I'm gonna go fake something and I don't know what I'm talking about. Like they told me, call the legislator. I don't know what I'm gonna say to her, but I did it. Right. And so then I brought all four of them and then I was kind of quiet. Then I asked a whole bunch of questions and then I'm like, okay, she has dyslexia. Let me learn about it. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. And then, and this may sound cliche, but, and I I say this again, like I tell people, I knew my daughter was smart. Right. Like I knew she was smart. She was three years old saying defecate. She was very inquisitive. She asked tons of questions. And I kept saying, like, I mean, her dad was like, oh, you don't have to get her evaluated. She's smart. She'll catch on. And people would tell me, oh, she's your first child. You're being over the top. She's going to get it. But I kept saying, no, it's like she's smart. But why isn't she learning to read? Like, why isn't she learning to read? And so I had somebody say, oh, your daughter's dyslexic. I'm so sorry. I said, what are you sorry about? My baby's brilliant you know, there was that, oh, oh, like she, she, oh, she slowed. No, no. And so I just kind of, I guess I was different in that sense that I wanted to learn and I wanted to know, and I wasn't afraid to ask questions. So that kind of made me ask the questions and be in those difficult spaces, you know what I mean? And, and just kind of, say that I wanna do more. Like how can I educate parents? That's why we're coming together to have these conversations. And I bet you there's so many parents listening right now who didn't even know the educators don't know what they're doing. I say that jokingly, but you know what I mean? Like they really weren't taught. They really have good intentions. They don't intentionally mean to mislead us. Well,
1: it's like going to a foot doctor when your throat hurts. Like the assumption is that the teachers are supposed to know everything, right? They're generalists in a respect, but there's some things you need a specialist for. Most teachers are not trained to be specialists, right? So like if my foot hurts, the likelihood is I'm going to call a foot doctor specifically. But you may say teachers should be trained in this. That's a different conversation. That's what we're working on. That's a part of what we're doing here, right? We're doing a better job of training teachers to be more specialists so that they can't like science of reading, that should be like an approach to reading that I think all teachers should understand. But in the past, that's not how teaching has been approached. So in some ways, the way that we're doing is different. Mm-hmm. But again, there's an assumption that teachers should kind of know everything. And that's not the case. And we don't look at the medical field that way, or even law, right? My husband's a corporate lawyer, you wouldn't go to him if you needed help with real estate, he deals with other stuff, right? Same for doctors, when you have a specific issue, you go to a doctor who deals with that. But again, so the work that we're doing is a little different in that we're saying that this specialty reading work is work that teachers need to have more access to. So it's not just for the specialists, but a lot of parents don't necessarily understand that in the past, this reading work that we're talking about that these kids need, this is work that's just going to help people read better. It's not just aligned with people who have dyslexia. I think it just works well right? Yes, yes. yes. Um, But traditionally, it's been aligned with a very specific group of educators.
3: Tune in next week, where we'll continue to bring you lived experiences and more unfiltered conversations with experts in the field around all things Black and Dyslexic. Make sure you subscribe and follow the Black and Dyslexic podcast where we educate, empower, and equip Black and underrepresented minorities. The Black and Dyslexic Podcast is partially funded by Morgan Cares and the Center for Urban Health Disparities Research and Innovation, awarded by the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. The Black and Dyslexic Podcast is sponsored by Dyslexia Advocation Incorporated, a 501c3 charitable organization located in Baltimore City, Maryland, whose mission is to equip parents of children with dyslexia and other language-based learning disabilities with the necessary tools to help their children become successful readers. You can find them on the web at www.soallcanread.org.